Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of DEI After Five. This is one that I think will be a really exciting conversation to have. Um, It's been one that I've wanted to do for a while and just could not quite figure out who I wanted to have this conversation with. And so um, started really thinking about it and like, oh, I know exactly who I wanna have this conversation with. And so my guest today is Karen Fleshman. Hi, Karen. Hi, Sasha. So it's wonderful to have you here. And you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation um, is because there has been discussion around how women can support each other in this space with this nuance of how can black and white women get along better? How can women of color look to women, uh, white women as allies? In all of those things. And so wanted to have that conversation and saw a couple of posts and have been following you for a while also. Um, and you're always one that is just like, let's just dive into the conversation. So th- that's that's exactly you know what I want to do. So let's start first with talk about racy conversations. Like how did that even come about? Actually, racy conversations came about because of black women. So I am a white woman who grew up in an almost entirely white community, but I've had kind of an unusual career path because I've always worked for global majority organizations and almost all of my bosses have been women of color and they have been excellent mentors, role models, given me a lot of feedback on, on things I needed to do better. And uh, I've worked in the field of youth workforce development, preparing young adults of color for the workplace. And I was a mentor to many young adults of color as they began corporate careers. And it was a conversation I had in 2014 with two young black women who had graduated from the workforce development program I used to work for have been working for tech companies for a couple of years. And they were telling me, listen, we're super grateful for our incomes and our lifestyles, but being the only black woman, as far as the eye can see in our work environment, we are bombarded by toxicity. And a lot of it is coming from women who look like you. And that was that moment where I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I thought, I was helping young people of color, preparing them for these careers. And in a sense I was, but I was also putting them in harm's way. And the folks who I really needed to be reaching out were my peers, Hmm. white people, the dominant group in many workplaces. And I was gonna stop preparing young adults of color for the workplace and start preparing the workplace for young adults of color. That is when I decided to create racy conversations. I love that. 
because it's the onus is not on people of color to change those environments, right? And so, you know, having that that mindset shift of okay, yes, I can do what I can to prepare them for the skills that they need in order to go into these spaces. But how do we prepare these spaces for individuals that may not look like us or have shared experiences with us? And I think that's a very interesting way to approach this because many organizations, and I'm trying to think of what how the phrase is, like if you're going to um, bring a new organ into a body, you have to prepare the body for that organ, right? You have to do all the things to make sure the organ won't reject I mean, the body won't reject that organ, right? And it's the same thing with people and organizations and making sure that the organization is open and willing to accept the new body, right? The new organ that's coming in. Um, and we do very little about that, but at the same time, we talk about inclusion all the time. As you're talking What's coming to mind is that excellent diagram created by a nonprofit organization in Canada, and it shows the woman of color enters the workplace. And at first, the white leadership is so excited that she's there, but then it turns out she was a tokenized hire. Mm -hmm. And so she's subjected to repetitive injury and microaggression. And when she points this out to the white leadership and says, hey, things need to change here. Instead of listening to her and actually changing, they point the finger at her and blame mm -hmm. her for not fitting in with them until finally she either quits of her own volition or is fired and exits the organization. And we see this happening over and over and over again. Yeah. So much injury to so many incredibly talented people and injury to organizations because we're not creating the kind of organizations we need to serve the current market, to serve our society and, and all its many dimensions. So that's what I really see Racy Conversations is doing is bridging that gap. That diagram, I think every year or so I, I repost it because I know that so well. And every single time it gets tens of thousands of likes because so many women of color have, they're like, yes, that's exactly what's happening to me right now. Or I've, I've been through that cycle. Um, and so it didn't come out of nowhere, right? That is the experience. And so how can, I'm gonna ask two questions. Well, how can organizations do better in this space. But then I want to go back to something else you said after you answer that question. Sure. How can organizations do better? Um, prepare. Prepare to have, as you were just saying, prepare the body for the new organ mm -hmm. and do the self-reflection, raise the self-awareness. There's so many great resources you can turn to. Uh, Minda Hart's uh, the memo or, or right within so many, um, blogs and, and just so much information out there about the workplace experiences of women of color. So read that stuff and actually reflect 
what do I need to do? How do I need to change in order for this person to, to um, be able to thrive in this workplace? And I think also we spend a lot of time focusing on these interpersonal behaviors, but from an organizational standpoint, the organization needs to be tracking the data, yeah. okay, to really understand what teams and, and managers have particular challenges in this area, what teams and managers are doing well, how long do uh, women of color remain in a position? How quickly do they advance in comparison to their peers, et cetera? So I think there's both an interpersonal component and a data component, and we need to be working on both of them. I love that that last piece, especially because it's it's all about the data, right? Especially tech is all about you know being data driven. But then of course, when you ask for these numbers, they're like, well, we don't capture these numbers. Mm, yeah, you do. Um, and so how do you just and aggregate then, the data that you have, right? Then they claim that, you know, we are an entity that, that fails fast and we love to take risks. But, oh, if we were to track our, our demographic data, uh, that would be too risky too and risky. open us up to legal liability. It's like... <laughs> it's a mess. It's the foolishness. Um, but I want to go back to something you said in the beginning, because I think this is a topic that is difficult for a lot of people to have. And it is the role of white women, mm -hmm. right, in these spaces. And I'll go back to some conversations that I've had where, especially, you know, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion pre pandemic, pre-George Floyd, pre-racial unrest, for so many organizations, diversity equaled gender. And in doing so, um, many of the voices were the majority of gender, which were white women. And so women of color, women with disabilities, women with any other intersectional identity um, was not necessarily captured in what organizations were doing. And so when I, I think back and I look and I see my path through that chart that you mentioned, the times where I hit challenges wasn't necessarily with the job that I was doing. It was never anything about my skill or my experience or the knowledge that I brought to the organization. It was a cultural disconnect of me challenging or, um, what, what was I told? That I did not respect authority? <laughs> um, yeah. That I had an attitude? You know, all of the things. And so those were all white women mm. that have said that to me. I cannot think of times where my challenges that have impacted my career have been at the hands of white men. And so just want to talk about that because I think for many women of color, that's the experience. You know, very rarely is it the men, white men, that are part of the problem. And so, as you're talking about the two students that you had um, that kind of came to you, very parallel to my experience as well, too. And so, what role can white women play 
in starting to bridge some of these gaps? And I, first of all, I'm just so sorry that you had those experiences. And I would add, I've had those experiences too. You know, I talk about it all the time. From white men in the workplace, I experienced concrete ceiling, wage gap, and sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. But the most harmful experiences I had in the workplace came from white women who were senior to me within the organization and perceived me as a threat to mm. their proximity to white to men in power. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so they would do things like take things that I had shared with them. They would approach me as like a mentor, right? So I would open up and share things with them. And then they would take what I shared with them and use it against me and, and do all these um like gossiping, workplace gossip to undermine me. And mm -hmm. it caused so much psychological harm. I had to go to therapy for a couple of years to get over what this one white woman did to me in the workplace. So um, uh, I think that what the role of white women in this conversation, we have a lot of healing to do and a lot of unconditioning. And I, I've come to this, you know, I, I'm very much influenced by Resma Menachem and my grandmother's hands yeah. and the whole intergenerational trauma that he speaks about not only black bodies and bodies of culture having, but also white bodies. And in particular, thinking about why white women behave the way we do today is really mm -hmm. rooted in a thousand years of, of violence that was inflicted by white men to white women in Europe before we even came to this country. And then when we got to this country, um, the way the laws were structured, we were, we literally became our husband upon marriage. And uh, we were brought here to have white heirs and to police the plantation so that the, the white man could be off engaged in, you know, writing the constitution and fighting the revolutionary war, et cetera. And when you add all that up together, I, it starts to make sense to me the way white women behave in the workplace today. I'm not trying to excuse us. I'm not trying to, um, to, to say that uh, what we do is justified. What I am trying to say is that I honestly urge all white women to read Resma's book and to really think about, um, do the exercises, how can we let go of our conditioning, of our intergenerational trauma, um, so that we can be the true women we're supposed to be and to be true siblings with women of color so that we can transform our society for everyone's freedom, safety, and liberation. Karen, thank you so much, because you hit on a couple of things there that I think are critical in this conversation, right? It's one was proximity to power. 
And I think in modern day, um, this, the how you laid out the historical context of that is very tied to it, right? So proximity to power in there's this mindset of, okay, if there's one woman at the top, there can only be one at the top. And how do we protect that? And I think that speaks to the experience that you've had. Um, and there's a, a, a little bit of victimhood in that too, in that historically um, men, particularly white men are very protective of white women. Mm. And so when you have this play of power and you have someone that is already in that position, but they see it being threatened by anybody, right? They know how to get protection around them very quickly so that they are not, they become the victim and not the oppressor. 100%. And, you know, white women tears oh, um, in order to <laughs> escape accountability, right? One thing I, I want to talk about is there is a difference between white women tears of, oh, look at me, oh, pity me, oh, rescue me, oh, that that bad black woman over there made me feel bad, and white woman tears of genuine grief of realizing, oh, my God, you know, I have caused so much harm, and I have been taught so many things that are false. And I genuinely grieve for that. So I want to move, you know, I, I want to move white women through a process of unlearning these things and learning new patterns of behavior, learning to see who our real allies are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I like that you differentiated between the two, right? Mm -hmm. Because for many women of color, and I'll, I'll just say it in this way, it's difficult to ascertain which is which mm -hmm. because it's used so frequently and it's weaponized, right? Yes. And so I've had experiences where I now can, based on the relationship that I have with the person, I can tell, okay, these are genuine tears. These are tears of anger. These are tears of concern. These are tears that want to move mountains so that everything is equitable versus tears that know I have proximity to power. And if I cry to the right person, they're going to protect me. 100%. And I want to encourage often when white women are crying, those, those genuine tears of, of um, grief, Let's cry them with each other. Let's cry them with other white women, okay? Let's not ask Sasha to pat us on the back and say, oh, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this. She has that, that compared to what you have experienced, it's just totally, totally disproportionate and, and just plain immoral to ask you to comfort me as I go through this realization process. Yeah. I do think there is a very important time for us to come together and to heal our relationship with each other. But I want to encourage white women to work on ourselves substantially before we start to do that. 
so that in our coming together, we don't cause more harm and injury. And you actually, that was a perfect segue into my next question, because um, when you look at, especially in the last few years, the demographics of who's coming into DEI work, right? A good majority um, are white women. And so as I talk to people, as I'm coaching people, as I'm consulting with folks that are interested in coming into this career path, one of the first questions that I say is, have you done your internal work? Right, have you done, it's great that you have passion, love it. Like I love decorating my house. I'm not gonna be on HGTV. Like I, I know my limitations, right? And so, I ask people, like, what internal work have you done? What are your, what biases do you hold? What are you doing to kind of unpack that? Um, what are the things that make you uncomfortable and why? And, you know, and really trying to dig deep because I think once you start sitting in that discomfort within yourself, then you realize exactly what you said, what, which is, I now know if I'm going to be in community community with someone else, how much space I should take up, right? Where do I get my comfort from? Or where should I go when I'm having this moment? And if this moment is about me, then do I need to bring a woman of color or a trans woman into this to, to comfort me, right? And I think that's a lot of what, what happens and so I appreciate what you said in where do you need to take that, hold on to that trauma? Yes, thank you so much. I mean, I, I agree with you. What, what internal work have you done? And what internal work are you continuing to do? Yes. You know, yeah. where it's not like we hit Zen and then we're good. <laughs> like, I made I'm, it. No. <laughs> I'm still screwing up left and right, you know, and, and learning and things are also constantly changing. Yes. So I, I think it's really important to, to remain engaged. Um, I, I hear a lot of voices saying, you know, uh, should white people even be doing this work? Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, personally, I think this change is so large that we need as many hands as possible. And we have to make sure that all hands are being accountable to and centering the most marginalized people. And that the change that we need to work toward is our collective change, not just our individual change, but our collective change. So what does that look like for me? That looks like collaboration. Mm -hmm. That looks like partnership. That looks like mentors. So, you know, my I have an incredible constellation of mentors who, uh, like um, Adrienne Marie Brown calls her woes, the working on excellence. Mm -hmm. They <laughs> they will hold me to account. They will push me when I come across a, a dilemma, I can call them and they will help me figure it out. Um, it's just an excellent, excellent resource. It's also about me having mentees and bringing people along in this journey and supporting their advancement as well. 
and also it's financial. So about, mm -hmm. I would say, um, 80% of the people who hire me are black women and I give them a 10% referral fee for all the business um, that they send my way. Um, because I, you know, I, where did I learn this stuff? I learned it from black women. So I need to make sure that I am, you know, not just resource hoarding and, and capitalizing on the intellectual property of black women, but adding my unique perspective to it. The reason why they hire me is because they say, listen, I've been trying to get this message across for a very long time. And I know that somehow they will be able to hear you in yep. a way that they can't hear me. So can you come in and, and deliver this message? And then they coach me. <laughs> oh my goodness. We go over everything in utmost detail several times before I deliver it because they know exactly how to calibrate it hmm. to their workplace. Yeah. And that's, I mean, unfortunately, that's so what so many women of color in this space have to do, right? Because we know leadership isn't going to necessarily take it from us. Mm. And so, um, yeah, there are, there are a couple of folks that I I know that I'm like, hey, I have this thing that I need to, I need you to present it <laughs> for me. And I had to do that when I was even working in corporate, right? Mm. Like I had a, a white male colleague that anytime something controversial would come up that I was like, oh, if I say something, all the red flags are going to come out for me. Um, but if you say it, you'll get props. So <laughs> here's the thing to say. And, you know, he would do it. But at the same time, he'd be so angry that that was the case. He was like, it shouldn't be that way. They should listen to you. And I'm like, but this is the system that we're in. Right. And so how do we leverage using each other kind of in this space? Um, and I think that was a, a lesson that I had to learn very quickly in the corporate space, but see the benefit of it as well, too. Because as you said, we're all kind of trying to move this thing forward together. And I would also say white women in this space, we have to be very conscious of not using our voices to white comfort, right? Mm. We should be the ones risking and and being bold and taking on that direct message mm -hmm. um and and dealing with the consequences of that instead of assuaging oh look we're doing this diversity effort and we're such a good company and now we're gonna post <laughs> our black square on instagram and and put up our blog post and call it a day yeah. no we cannot be the ones um, validating that. We have to be pushing companies to be bolder. I love that. Yes. And it reminds me like I, everyone, I, I tend to not do stuff around allyship mm. because my question for allies, especially those that are kind of in the diversity space is what are you willing to risk mm. for me? Right. And it's a different mindset because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm an ally and I'm going to do this thing and I do diversity work. But if you're not risking anything to support those that are the most marginalized, then are you really doing this work? 100%. So. Yes. And I'm constantly, you know, holding myself to account to that too, because it's very easy to get into this, oh, 
you know, uh, I, I have done enough or I'm outspoken enough or, you know, I've proved myself in this way. No, it's a daily practice and yeah. you need to just keep on taking more, not less. Love it. So Karen, I'm going to ask, we're going to do a little pivot mm -hmm. because we've talked about, I mean, this, this work is, you know, this work, um, it's not always pretty. And so what do you do to take care of yourself? What do you do to fill your cup? Make sure that you are um, taken care of. Thank you for asking that. My favorite thing is Zumba. Um, yes, I'm very blessed to live in San Francisco where we have outdoor Zumba classes. And, you know, it's for me, it's everything. It's the community who comes to it. Um, it's it's um, almost entirely women of color, and I would say our median age is probably around uh, 50 or 60. Um, it is the being outside and getting the vitamin D. It's the music, um, which I love so much. I moved to San Francisco from New York City, where you hear uh, salsa, merengue, reggaeton all the time when you're walking down the street, but you don't hear that in San Francisco. So I love hearing that music again and moving my body. And it's that, that whole combination that just makes me feel so much better because this work is heavy. Yeah. So heavy sometimes. And sometimes you feel like, I mean, I'm working as hard as I can Am I doing enough? Because things are not changing. It just seems to be getting worse. And I hear a lot of us saying those things. And so anyone who's feeling that way, huge hug to you. Yeah. You are enough. You are enough. <laughs> don't get discouraged. We have yeah. to keep going. And But don't, don't feel like you're not doing enough or you're hearing all of this on your shoulders. Agreed. And I think it goes back to what you said, um, even about Zumba, right? It's about community and how do you stay connected to folks that are doing this work. And I think that that's so critical. And that's something I'm always talking about is like, who's in your community? Who's in your circle of support? Um, and I absolutely love the Zumba thing. It is cold here, so we can't do Zumba outside. But as soon as it warms up, that's where I will be because I absolutely love it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's those types of things that get your adrenaline pumping and you excited and yes i oh, see now i gotta go and my humming <laughs> i'm always humming as i leave singing in public and embarrassing my kids <laughs> i love it love it love it well karen thank you so much for taking the time today this has been an amazing conversation um you know and it's probably one of many to come because i think this is a space where we just have to have some of these racy conversations some of these uncomfortable conversations, um, particularly amongst women, because we, if we can come together, how many mountains can we move? So hundred percent. so much for this. And I just want to thank everyone for taking the time and listening to us today. And of course, please remember to subscribe to this channel, follow us here on YouTube or any of your uh, favorite pop podcast um, platforms. And we will see you next time. Have a good one. Thank you.